Today's sermon comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. If you're following in the Pew Bible, that begins on page 828. The Word of God. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They, they tie up heavy burdens, hard, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulder. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make <clears throat> their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying... If we had lived in the days of the fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. 
Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you broods of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute them from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Baraha, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to your desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. pray together. We have one teacher and one instructor, the Christ. And so I am grateful today, Father, that that I can come in weakness and in fear and with much trembling that my weakness, I am grateful that my weakness can be revealed today in the preaching of your word so that the power of Christ might be seen and that the faith of my brothers and sisters and if you're pleased to grant salvation to some today, that the the newly born and gifted faith of others may not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God and how we pray today that our hearts would see Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit as you mean for us to see him today and in seeing him see ourselves as you see us and our need for him and his absolute and complete sufficiency as the great Savior of sinners. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, well, friends, the gospel, this is the second week we're, we're, uh, we're in Matthew 23, and um, we'll finish it up next week. But it's good to remember, and you say, well, what is this, what is this text on... Scribes and Pharisees have to do with us because we're not scribes and we're not Pharisees. Well, not so fast. The gospel is the good news of the the good news from God of the power of God that saves us, rescues us from both our worst deeds and our best deeds. Yes, you heard me right. We need to be rescued from our best deeds. Why would I say something like that? Well, here's why. Because many 
of the things that we regard as our best deeds, God regards as our worst because they come from a proud heart, a heart that is proud before God and lives before God as though we could compensate him and manipulate him and control him and bind him to bless us through our own obedience and piety. It is a way of thinking and living And if you want doing religion or doing morality before God that I'm going to refer to this morning as moralism. And moralism is no respecter of persons. It flourishes just as well inside the church as it does outside the church. In fact, in some ways, it's more hidden in the church. And it's something that all of us Uh, need to be concerned about among Christians, and I'm talking about genuinely converted people, not just professing Christians. Moralism is a virus that can survive for a long time and manifest itself in all kinds of ways in a Christian's life, particularly uh, when we as Christians resist continuing to be converted over and over again to the same Christ by the same gospel that converted us to begin with. And after we've been a Christian for a while, we begin so often to to confuse the line between our sanctification, our progress in holiness, and our justification. And every single believer in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. And so we began to measure our confidence before God according to what we perceive of our own obedience to God. And that is not just a fool's errand. It is deeply dishonoring to Jesus Christ. And so all of us who are already Christians this morning, we need to to be very jealous for the honor of Christ in our heart. And if this kind of thinking, whether we call it moralism or not, whether we're doing it wittingly or unwittingly, whether the patterns of our life reveal that it is still alive and well in our lives, we need to be jealous with the jealousy of God for the honor of Jesus Christ, and we need to plead with God to root all of it out. And how's God going to do that? By the same gospel that converted us to begin with. And non-Christians need to worry about this As well, you need to understand that God is not impressed by what you think your best deeds are. And I remember as a non Christian looking around at the world, and of course, I never thought I was inferior to other people. Hello! I was most eminently and obviously superior to all of them. And as a non-Christian, it is very easy to begin to imagine that God will be, in fact, that he must be sufficiently pleased with whatever, whatever level of moral performance pleases you. But friends, God, here, here, this is both the good news and the bad news, right? God does not judge a book by its cover. He judges a book by the story beneath the cover. He is not wowed. He is not wooed. He is not won by the works of our hands and feet. 
He is only one by the works of the heart, the hands, and the feet of only one, Jesus Christ. And all of us need to be summoned again to the foot of his cross to remember and to praise God and to rejoice in the gospel where he announces that he is only one by the heart, the hands, the feet of only one, Jesus Christ. This is the jealousy that I'm talking about this morning. The jealousy that if you're a Christian, you know already your heart is saying, yes, I want that. I want to join the father in his jealousy for his son in that way. That's the lesson of the cross. It is equally urgent and relevant for the Christian as well as the non-Christian. And so Matthew 23 is a gift to 100% of us because it gives us the opportunity to think through Jesus' strong words to the scribes and the Pharisees give us a, a, a wonderful opportunity to consider why it is that we need to be rescued from what we regard as our best deeds and how it is that Jesus accomplishes that rescue. So we'll do that under three headings this morning. The gravity of our moralism, the depravity of our moralism, and the opportunity of our moralism. So let's think first about the gravity of our moralism. And there's two measures of the gravity that I want to think through with you. First, the, the question of definition. What exactly is it? And then the question of its destination. Where does it lead us? Why we need to feel the weight of this? And, and so I've got six definitions of moral. Don't groan yet. I've got six definitions of moralism. Uh, what I'm trying to do is, is create a dragnet that will help, uh, that will, by God's grace, catch every one of us, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, and see that this is not somebody else's problem. This is our problem. This is my problem. This is your problem. Okay? So moralism is what Jesus denounces so forcefully in the scribes and the Pharisees in our passage. This is the first definition. It's when the self-righteousness in the heart of man hijacks things that we would identify as religious piety and morality. It hijacks that self-righteousness in our hearts that is looking for its own vindication, hijacks religion and even Christianity, the outward forms of Christianity, the vocabulary of Christianity, the rituals of Christianity and hijacks those things as tools to gain honor for ourselves from both men and God. That's definition number one. Definition number two is that moralism is when my behavior becomes my functional savior. When my behavior becomes my functional savior. And that word functional is very important here because it's, it's, it's meant to distinguish what between my official Savior, so I'm talking, I'm talking to Christians here. I'm talking to myself. There's a difference between my official Savior, who is Jesus Christ, and my functional Savior, how I actually live. I mean, I might say that Jesus is the one who saves me from my sins, but the way I might actually live on a day-to-day -day basis, what I trust in, and what I actually do on a day-to-day -day basis that I'm looking to as my shelter and as my refuge for God is my own behavior. That's when my, and boy, this is, this I know I'm not alone in. When, 
when my confidence before God, the measure of my confidence before God is my own obedience. And so if I feel or perceive that I have not been particularly obedient in a stretch of time toward God, I stand aloof and far off from him, imagining, though I don't necessarily voice this with words, this is the soundtrack of my heart that I do not expect, that I am entitled to confidence before God. But of course you see what the problem is. My confidence before God and the gospel, this is good news, right? It's very bad news for our pride, very good news that protects us from despair. The Christian's confidence before God is never, never on the basis of your obedience to him and always exclusively on the basis of Jesus Christ. If you trust in him, you have a right through Jesus Christ to be confident before God. Definition number three, moralism is when I expect that what I regard as my good behavior toward God to guarantee what I regard as his good behavior towards me. In other words, I, I, I live in such a way and I follow the rules in such a way, even within Christian forms, that, that I expect him, I expect my obedience and my piety to guarantee that only good things are going to happen to me, good as I define them. So when suffering comes, I say, well, wait a second. What's the deal? Or when I'm called to, to tr into trials by God, I say, well, that's not how it's supposed to go. Yeah, see, that's moralistic thinking because you're thinking, hey, I gave you my obedience and my piety as though God would be impressed by that. See Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. So where's the good coming back? That's the logic of moralism. That happens not just in the heart of a non-Christian. It happens in the heart of a Christian. Definition number four, moralism is like Bernie Madoff. Oh, yes, you remember him. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's a swindle in which I strive to pay for my old disobedience by promises of new obedience. As though God would somehow be fooled by that. And I think that my new obedience is good enough to cover my old obedience. But wait a second, I'm obliged to God for new obedience every moment. So that can't ever compensate for my old obedience. Praise God that Jesus Christ's obedience is sufficient for his people. And the gospel is not a Ponzi scheme. Definition number five, moralism is when I define myself by the sins I do not commit. Oh boy. By the way, this is, uh, this is what our culture thinks we think. We define ourselves by the sins we don't commit. Well, we don't do that. We're not as bad as those people. We don't, we're not out on the street advocating same-sex marriage and the destruction of our culture. Quotes around that. At least I don't do that. At least I'm not like them. And of course, that has to proceed. The only way you can even think that way is if you heavily edit your own record in a very self-serving way, privileging the things that you identify as your strengths and concealing or overlooking your failures. 
That's definition number five. Definition number six is just the flip side of the same coin. Moralism is also when I define myself by the sins I do commit. You see, the last one, number five, when I define myself by the sins I don't commit, that's my moralism that, that believes, that's the pride of moralism that believes it's successful. Well, I don't do that. But you're just as moralistic in the way that you think and And your logic is just as devoid of the gospel if you are functioning and living at a level of despair as a believer because you are defining yourselves by the sins you do commit. That's just as moralistic as the other. Because what's happening is you are not defining yourself according to Jesus Christ. Moralism isn't just foolish, it's blasphemous. Because the cross means that our worst deeds, and it always means this, that our worst deeds are powerless to exclude us from the kingdom of heaven. Do you believe that? If Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross was an all-sufficient, satisfying sacrifice to the Father, then that means that there is no bad deed that I, as a Christian, can commit if I'm trusting in Christ, that will keep me out of the kingdom of heaven. It means that Jesus Christ has taken away from the earth all, all legitimate reason to despair because he, in his achievement, has accomplished something so great that the worst deeds of men, if someone trusts in Christ, are powerless to keep that sinner out of the kingdom of heaven. But it's also blasphemous, moralism is, because it, it, that same cross means that our best deeds are powerless to gain us entrance into the kingdom of heaven. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ infinitely exceeds both our worst deeds and our best deeds. Now we might say, well, okay, so I'm a little off. It can't be that big of a deal, right, Mike? I mean, you're so worked up about this. You gave us six definitions. Well, we need to learn to think Jesus' thoughts after him about moralism. And if you look at this passage carefully, you will see that Jesus does not abide moralism. Look at verse 15. There are two indictments that he gives in this passage that should just, just shake us into alertness. Look at verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So where does moralism lead? It leads to hell. If you follow its logic and you don't repent of it and you let it thrive and you come under its teaching and you live there and your heart begins to flourish in that poison that imagines that you, by your obedience and your piety and your morality, can bind God to bless you, friends, Jesus is saying, look at the end of that road. Where does that lead? I mean, these Pharisees are being very very zealous. They're traveling in a day where traveling risked your life. And yet Jesus is saying, what's the outcome? When you, this is such dangerous teaching and such a dangerous way of thinking that in, instead of rescuing people, it's going to, in the guise of religion, 
endanger them even further. And then verse 33, he intensifies this uh, fearsome evaluation of moralism and the moralists who love it in verse 33. Look at how he addresses them when he's getting to the climax of his seventh. Well, you serpents, you brood of vipers. What does that sound like? Sounds like Genesis 3. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? You see what he's saying? He's saying, he's identifying these uh, scribes and Pharisees who, friends, let's remember, they're not pagans. They love their Bibles. They say their Bibles, they probably knew the Old Testament way better than any of us. And they were convinced that whatever God said in his word was supposed to translate into concrete action. They were very zealous for that. And Jesus says to them, you guys are like snakes. You're essentially allied with Satan. And he asks this question that we'll see him answer later on. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? The stakes are very high. There is a kind of religiosity and piety that are deeply offensive to God. A kind of religiosity and piety that provokes his wrath. A kind of piety that if it's not repented of will cast somebody into hell. And so it's very important that we understand what it is and why Jesus regards it as so wicked. I mean, this is very strong language that needs to get our attention. And all of it is a, is a backdrop against which, and this is what I long to happen in my life again this morning and in yours, that, we, that what rises up over all above, all of this gravity of this critique is the gravity of God's solution to our moralism. In Jesus Christ. The gospel is so big. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across, I believe. So let's, let's consider uh, what is it that makes moralism uh, pave essentially a highway to hell, according to Jesus. And we'll look at the depravity, sec- our second point, the depravity of our moralism. And there's two, two things, I think, in this text that stand out, two aspects of moralism that highlight or that Jesus uses to highlight its depravity. Uh, What is it that makes it so immoral, that makes moralism so immoral and so wicked in the sight of God? And the first is uh, our our blindness, and the second is our pride. And, And moralism depends on both of these things. So first, the blindness. You notice, I mean, I was so grateful for the way Bob read the text because he was very careful to emphasize this rep- repetitive, or not repetitive, this repeated charge by the Lord Jesus of blindness in the text. You notice it five times. Five times Jesus charges the scribes and Pharisees with blindness. So obviously it's very important that when Jesus is looking at their moralistic way of living before God, what he sees is that it proceeds upon blindness. Verse 16, verse 17, verse 19, verse 24, verse 26. Blind guides, blind, 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 you blind Pharisee. And this is why why these charges of blindness. Well, this is because moralism is a kind of double-barreled blindness. That that first we blind ourselves to the reality of God. It's the only way moralism can survive. 
we blind ourselves to the reality of God's greatness and the, the requirements of His holiness. And then, having blinded ourselves to the reality of God, we become blind to the reality about ourselves. So a, a self-inflicted blindness to the reality of God then begets in us a self-serving blindness to the reality of ourselves. So how is moralism blindness to God? Well, I think the best example of this, it's not the only one in the passage, but the best example is Jesus' extended woe in verses 16 through 22 where he says to them, wait a second, you are kidding me. I mentioned this last week, but he, he's challenging their rules that, that use the temple and the, the, the altar and the gifts in the temple and the gold in the temple that use them. They kind of defined all these rules for when you could uh, get out of a promise and when you were obligated uh, by a promise, and they all turned on these uh, technicalities. And Jesus doesn't like the technicalities at all, but that's not the main energy in his critique. The main energy in his critique is that all of their rules turn the reality of God upside down. Because you notice more than once he says, well, wait a second. You say that if I make an oath by the temple, I don't have to keep it and I can break it. But if I make an oath by the gold in the temple, well, then it's binding. And Jesus says, wait a second, you've turned that upside down. What is it that makes the gold sacred? The temple that the gold is in, which is upside down from their logic. Or he does it again. You say, hey, if I swear by the altar, I can break that oath. But if I swear by the gift that's on the altar, well, then I have to keep it. And Jesus says, what What are you doing? What is it that makes, don't you see which is greater, the altar? Which is greater, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? And of course, the answer is obvious. But you see, this is what always happens in moralism. Moralism touches the outsides of holy things, and is, but is utterly blind to the reality of God because it has to be. Otherwise, it can't survive. It won't survive. Moralism is practice, just like the scribes and the Pharisees, is, is practicing, practicing religion and the outward forms of religion really as a tool for avoiding God, putting all these buffers between us and the reality of God, anything to avoid facing the fact as Jesus drives them to see inescapably that, that this whole temple and everything in it is just a picture of the throne that's in heaven that God inhabits. And he says, look, at the reality of God. You have blinded yourself in your religiosity, in your moralism, and in your piety to the reality of God, His greatness. You can't play games with it. And that's how moralism always has to work. It's got to keep us doing with our heads down on the next thing so that we can avoid and be insulated against the reality 
of God and that before him, apart from Christ, we are lost. Moralism wants surrogates. It wants surrogate measures of our standing before God. But it's not only blind to God, it's blind to ourselves. And that's the longest stretch of Jesus' critique. It goes through uh, 23 through 32. There's so many instances of it. See, Jesus is basically saying moralism is so naive. It's so naive about the reality of God. It, you, you think, did, I mean, have you guys seen that, that story this week about how Cassini, best spacecraft ever created by man, how Cassini, which arrived at Saturn, in 2004, 10 years ago, has been taking pictures just recently because it's just starting. It's, I guess it's spring now on Saturn. Who would have thunk it? It's spring on Saturn, and so it's been flying over. The, it's about to become summer, and it's flying over the north pole of Saturn. And on the north pole of Saturn, the Voyager spacecraft in 1980 and 81 saw that there was a hurricane four times the size of Earth, and it was hexagonal. Yes, it's a hexagonal, six-sided hurricane on Saturn. And God just does that. Boom. Oh, you want to take pictures of that? Okay. What are you going to do with it? How great God is. And to be, to think that you could manipulate a God who creates a hurricane on the North Pole of Saturn that has been going for at least 30 years. And it's in the shape of a hexagon. I mean, when does my brain stop blowing up? And to think that I, through my obedience, could bind him is so naive. And to think that my sin was, was not so deep that I couldn't rescue myself from it. And that's what Jesus shows us in all these episodes in verses 23 through 24, right? They, they tithe mint and dill and cumin, this little meticulous obedience, and they completely lose the forest of justice and faithfulness and mercy. And that's what moralism always does. It's always self-serving. It always measures our duties according to our abilities, what's within reach. But God's holiness is bigger than that. If he, He's the hexagonal hurricane Saturnian God. You can't fool him. You cannot say, well, here's a tree. I'm going to keep the forest from you. His jealousy for his honor is so broad it encompasses your entire life, every sphere. And the Pharisees were saying, well, we're going to just manage holiness. We're going to manage piety. And the gospel is proof. The cross is proof. It cannot be done. And better yet, it does not have to be done. There's a refuge 
that God himself has provided for men a refuge from our moralism. And it is in the obedience and perfect piety of his son, Jesus Christ. And God is calling us away from our naivete about him and about our sin and saying, be real. He's calling us into the reality of his son's achievement because that and that alone, him alone is the only thing that can rescue us. Oh, may our hearts just go. I mean, the tide of all of our moralism just be pulled out of our hearts by the gravity of Jesus Christ this morning. And then in verses 25 through 28, these illustrations, you know, you clean the outside of the plate and cup, hello, but the inside is full of robbery and self-indulgence, and again, you're like whitewashed tombs, but inside you're, you're full of lawlessness and all uncleanness. You see, this is very, it's very, it takes a lot of effort to whitewash a tomb. It takes a lot of effort, right, to, to clean the outside of a plate and cup. But what Jesus is saying is moralism is always doomed to failure because it's shallow. It's shallow. It doesn't deal, it's naive about the depth of sin and the problem of sin. It says, really, all I need to do is put a new coat of paint on this. I'll just change my behavior. And it's not only shallow, it's ineffective. Do you see in both these cases, they, they whitewash the tomb, but they're full. It's in vain, right? It's, they're, they're full of lawlessness and all uncleanness. You wash the outside of the cup, but you're still full of robbery and indulgence. Friends, do you see what Jesus is saying? You cannot rescue yourself from your sin. You can never get deep enough. You can never, through your own behavior modification, change who you are in a way that that moves you from being under God's wrath to being rescued from God's wrath. Only God can do that. I do this all the time in my backyard, right? There are weeds in my backyard. They like my backyard. And so what I will do, I will occasionally, you know, I do this in binges, I'll get my lawnmower out. I'll get down by each of the... Yeah, I know, I actually have a lawnmower. You would never know it, right? I get down my lawnmower, and every one of those wheels I set as low as I can possibly go because I want to get those weeds. And I'll run over it, and I'll just love it because I hear all those weeds dying. But you know what? I can cut them all the way down to the ground but they're still in the ground. And they're going to come back up. And that's the best that moralism can do. It cannot get rid of the weeds, my friends. Only Jesus Christ and a newborn, heaven-sent, heaven-gifted love for God given to you, produced in you by the Spirit of God can change your heart and clean it in the sight of God. Moralism is so shallow and it's so naive, and it's naive again. You see it in verses 29 through 32, when they, Jesus confronts him head on. This is another, another aspect of the naivete of moralism, because the, the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus says, hey, listen, you guys think you're so hot. You think you're so much better than all your forebears. You're saying to yourself, I've heard you say it, that if we had been alive in the days of our fathers, we would not have killed the prophets. And Jesus says, you understand not only is that not true, but by saying that you've confirmed that you would do exactly the same thing. And guess what's going to happen And proof of that? 
is you're going to kill me. And on you, all the righteous blood shed on earth is going to come. It's going to happen in this generation because they're going to kill Jesus. The innocent one. The only fully righteous blood ever shed on earth. And so, friends, you sit there and you say, well, that's not a sin I would commit. I wouldn't do that. You know, the only reason you don't commit it is because God restrains you. And because in the providence of God, you have not found yourself in a situation where those particular temptations have been presented. Oh, be very careful when you judge other people and you look at them and say, I would never do that. Oh, friends, the only sinner you actually know is you. And Jesus is warning us. He's saying, do not be naive about the depth or the power of sin in your life. If you are, you will begin to think that you do not need the radical rescue of a radically holy Savior. So that's the blindness. That is the depravity. And you can see why it's so depraved. Because it, it just, it's, it just, it closes our eyes to the truth about God, the truth about ourselves. Self-inflicted blindness toward God produces this self-serving blindness toward the reality of ourselves. And we begin to think we're adequate and we're superior to others. But what there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a deeper and an even more bitter root than that bitter fruit of our blindness uh, that in our moralism, and it's our pride. It's our pride. This is the depravity of all the depravities in our moralism. This is the issue. Notice how it's the pride of the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus targets first in this passage when he's talking to the crowds and his disciples uh, in verses, uh, let's see, you can really start, well, it's verses 2 through 7. He says, hey, listen, they sit on Moses' seat. They presume to sit on the seat of authority, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. And then look at verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. In other words, their religion is a tool to gain the approval of men. They're proud. And so he goes on and gives specifics. Oh, they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Look at how obedient we are to the Bible. Watch us. Watch us pray. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. They love that moralism is fueled by pride and the goal of moralism is pride. And Jesus is going after, and he's saying, look at what's driving this. The engine of their moralism, of their morality, is their pride. That's what's propelling them on. They want to be better than others, and they want to be better than others, not just in the sight of others, but in the sight of God. And so they, they tack on to, they hang on to these externals. They want greetings in the marketplace, and they want titles. They want to be called rabbi by others. And that's how moralism works. I pray more than you do. I know my Bible better than you do. I know my theology better than you do. I'm nicer than you. 
whatever angle we can get an advantage or an edge on someone else, and we're jockeying, using the things of religion, using even the forms of Christianity to ensure that I know the gospel better than you. Oh my goodness! You see, that's depravity. That's depravity. It's pride in action. You know what moralism is? Moralism is what John Owen, it's been a while, right? Can I, is it safe to talk about John Owen? I gave you a John Owen quote today. It's been a good day already. John Owen calls moralism will worship. And I think that's actually the best definition I've ever heard of it. When we're resting, what's will worship? Well, when we're resting or we're hoping or we're trusting in our own piety or our own moral performance to any degree as the basis of our safety, our identity, or our security before God, we are worshiping. You've got to see this for what it is. We are worshiping our own wills. Because we're looking to them as our security. We're investing our hope in them and in the decisions that we will make. Our decisions become our mediators. Do you see how offensive that would be to God? There is only one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Only one. Only his decisions can mediate for me. And, and worse even than, than worshiping my own will, in moralism we are essentially summoning God to worship our wills with us. And what I mean by that is this. When we begin to think or believe or live as though our obedience compels God, to bless us. So we can manipulate him and we expect him to reward us with blessings on the basis of the accomplishments of our hearts and wills rather than his sons. Sure, I realize that many of you are saying, well, I never do that. Well, let me just, let me just throw this out to you and ask you to consider this. The fact that you haven't consciously intended to do that does not mean that that's not what you've actually done, my friend. So moralism is will worship. You know what else moralism is? Moralism strives to manipulate and control God. Our moralism becomes like a safe room. You know, a, you know what a safe room is in a house? I don't have one. But you know what a safe room is in a house? You know, if they're intruders, you, it's this like fortified room, communication center, all that kind of stuff. And you can get in the safe room. And our moralism, moralism treats our own performance and obedience as a kind of safe room that we go into and we use in that safe room, we use our obedience against God. We pray the sinner's prayer, or we lead a moral lifestyle, or we work hard on our orthodox theology, and we regard these things as binding God to bless us, as though we've cast a spell on him or some kind of enchantment upon him. And in this safe room of our imagined adequate performance, it's carpeted from wall to wall with our own piety. It's decorated with our piety. 
It's insulated with our piety. And we think, we begin to think that in this safe room of our obedience, we have earned the right to be left alone. That 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 somehow, what we have achieved or are able to achieve or what we don't do, that that somehow entitles us to be insulated against all intruders, especially the one intruder we are most fearful of of all, and that is God himself. It is a very wicked thing. You see, what it does is it turns the relationship, moralism turns the relationship between God and man upside down. And you know, Jesus had no safe room. He had no safe room on Calvary. That was the whole point. He did not insulate himself against the call of his father at all. Against the call of his father to be the sin bearer for his people. That was not a safe room. That's our safe room. That's our shelter. That's our protection. But it was not Jesus's. And in moralism, we just turn it upside down. So, I'm not going to leave you with the depravity of your moralism. I want to celebrate with you the opportunity of your moralism. There is an opportunity because the gospel rescues us from our worst deeds. And that, high, that opportunity is as high, friends, because Jesus has gone to the cross and because he went to his, from the cross to his tomb and because he went from the tomb to his throne, absolutely anything is possible for absolutely everyone. There's an opportunity, the ceiling on the opportunity that Jesus Christ has opened up for even the worst moralist is as high as Jesus' throne. And when we see that, that opportunity opened up for us, that will win our hearts. But in order to see that opportunity, we have to come to terms with the extent of our liability first. It's not until you see your liability that you can begin to appreciate the massive opportunity that Jesus has opened up. And that's what Jesus confronts the Pharisees and the scribes with first. That's what his woes are about. Right? His woes confront the scribes and the Pharisees with their actual liability. And he, you know, when he reaches the climax of what he has to say to them in verses 29 through 36, it's just absolutely staggering. I mean, he announces a verdict of, upon them of just such breathtakingly massive guilt that it ought to take our breath away. Look at verse 35. So that on you may come all, excuse me, on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered, what do you mean you murdered? That's in Second Chronicles. You murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Like, what is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying, I think, you know, essentially the question you have to ask when you read that is, how could they possibly be that guilty? How could they be that guilty? And I think the answer is that that it's because they are going to shed the most righteous blood of all. And they are going to murder the innocent one, the final prophet, to whom all these other prior victims and prophets pointed. Jesus is going to the cross, and they are going to be held responsible in the eyes of God for his death. But you know, Jesus' woes, those same woes, confront us with our liability, friends. 
How could we? You say, well, how could we possibly be that guilty? Well, because Jesus went to the cross to die as the innocent one to shed his righteous blood. And in the eyes of God, we are responsible for his death. Yes, we. Friends, look at that cross with me. That cross testifies, through that cross, God is testifying as a witness against every single person in this room. Indeed, the whole world. And God's testimony is this. Your sins killed my son. Not somebody else's, but yours. Did you notice that story this week? It's a fascinating story to me about James Brady, who was President Reagan's press secretary in May 1981 when John Hinckley tried to assassinate President Reagan and James Brady took a bullet in the forehead. He was paralyzed. And he just died this past week at the age, I think, of 73. 33 years after he'd been shot, and the medical examiner did an autopsy on James Brady and ruled his death 33 years after the shooting as a homicide. Now, friends, when God performs, as it were, the autopsy on his son, the cause of his son's death that he finds is your sin and mine. And so our liability, I mean, you don't believe that? Think about Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Friends, we killed Jesus Christ, and the murder weapon was our sin. Now, unless you see that, unless you believe that, the opportunity that Jesus presents to us will not be powerful or beautiful to you. But Jesus' woes, you see, they, they have another side to their story. They are not just statements of our liability. They are a call to repentance. God is saying to the Pharisees and the scribes, just through Jesus Christ, just as he did through every other prophet, when a prophet announced a woe, it was God's call to repentance. Turn. Let me show you what the end of this road is like. It is a disaster for you. Turn while you still have time before it is too late. Bring to God a broken spirit and a contrite heart and repent of your righteousness and your piety. Now, yesterday I was working on this section of the sermon. I kept, I kept hitting my head, and the doorbell rang. I was at, the, at our uh, dining room table in the living room, and the doorbell rang. And Maria was very gracious. She went to answer the door, so I didn't have to get up. And as soon as she opened the door, I could hear that there were Jehovah's Witnesses at the door. Now, that's the second time they've been to our house in, uh, in the last month, and I would have thought after the last exchange that they would not be coming for a return visit. But if you remember it this weekend, God brings it to mind, please pray for Henry 
and Doris Reed, who were the couple at my door. And so I heard that it was Jehovah's Witnesses, and I went, went up to them and stepped out onto our porch with them. And I introduced myself, and I said, well, we are Christians, and we are very concerned and burdened for your eternal welfare because you are teaching and believing things that deny the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, how so? And I said, well, let me ask you this one question. How is a sinner in your system, how is a sinner saved and reconciled to God? And he said, "Uh, Jesus paid a ransom. And I said, I agree with you. That's Mark 10.45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I said to him, but you understand, of course, that that ransom payment would have no power to save a sinner unless Jesus was fully God. And he looked at me with a smile on his face, and he asked me a question very slowly as if he wanted me to feel how ridiculous I sounded. And he said, you mean God sacrificed himself to God? Exactly. Because there is no other way. And when Jesus speaks here in Matthew 23, when he's standing in the temple courts, he says something so remarkable. Look at verse 37. I wonder if it stood out to you. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would... Oh, look at this pronoun. I have gathered you, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. You see what Jesus is doing? That's absolutely shocking. He's referring to history that precedes his birth in Bethlehem by centuries. And yet he is saying, he's inserting himself right into the middle of it. He's saying throughout that whole history, I would have gathered you and your children as a hen gathers her brood. You see what Jesus is saying? He's speaking with the voice of Yahweh. And he's in the midst of his temple. Remember last week we looked at Malachi 3. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Here he is. And what's the message? The message is that he still wants to gather sinners to himself. And in fact, that work, that desire, that resolve, that passion is not only finished, it's undiminished, it's rising, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And in a matter of just a few days, Jesus is going to wield his greatest Yahweh, right? Yahweh, Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. He is going to wield his greatest gathering tool of all, which is his cross. You remember what Jesus says in John 12, 32? And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
Jesus is going to do a gathering work that is so much greater than anything that has ever been done. God's heart, to, he means to gather sinners to himself, and the means that he's going to use to do it is his cross, and it's such an astonishing thing. It, you know, a hen gathering her brood, that, that's, a, that's somebody who has a natural affinity with her chicks and saying, come on. But what Jesus is going to do, he's going to gather sinners to the righteous God. He's going to gather them out of their hostility toward God and gather them not as a captor captures or gathers prisoners, but as a bridegroom gathers his bride. He's going to use his cross to do it. Do you see the wonder of that? When he says this, he is not saying, well, guess what? My desire to gather sinners is over. We're done. No, he hasn't even gotten to the greatest thing he will ever do to gather sinners. And so when he stands in Matthew 23, he is saying, I mean to gather sinners still. And my greatest work is yet to come. And friends, as he stands forth, that same Jesus Christ stands forth from this text this morning in our room, he means to do exactly the same thing. He, is, he means to gather sinners to himself by the very same means that he used in Jerusalem all those years ago. That cross still has living power. And that Jesus still has a living willingness to save and gather sinners to himself. But he calls us away from our moralism, calls us away not only from despair over our worst deeds, but also pride over our best deeds. And he is able to be that all-sufficient Savior for any, because unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, he practiced what he preached. He was the great one, verse 11, right? He is the greatest among us who made himself the servant of all. Unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, he bound himself. He was willing to be bound with our burden, which we could not bear. And to have its full eternal weight laid on his shoulders. And he came to open the kingdom of heaven for sinners like us. Not like the scribes and Pharisees who close it in people's faces like every moralist does. If you follow the logic of moralism, the door of the kingdom of heaven will never be open to you. It can't be because the only way you can ever get in is through the work of the Son of God exclusively. And Jesus journeyed. The scribes and the Pharisees would travel over land and sea, but Jesus, the Son of God, traveled from heaven to earth, from glory to shame, to open the kingdom of heaven for sinners and to give everyone who trusts in him the right and the authority to become the children of God. He did not neglect any portion of God's law. He kept the forest and the trees so that we could take shelter in his obedience and leave all the naivete of our own, the myths of our own goodness and the sufficiency of our own piety. Just leave it behind. Turn from it. It will kill us. And because of this, he is full, unlike the scribes and Pharisees, he is full of all holiness, all lawfulness, in the sight of God, so that if we touch him in repentance and faith, guess what happens? To our uncleanness and our lawlessness, it goes away, and it is judged in Jesus' body on the cross. 
We are one for God, and God is one for us by the only one who can do both of those things, Jesus Christ. What a Savior we have been given. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, make us fascinated with your achievements to such a degree that there would not be a foothold, a surviving foothold for any of ours when it comes to the glory of our salvation. And we pray in your name. Amen.